verse 5. The Bible says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the, um, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being, in, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I would challenge you sometimes to look at Philippians chapter 2 and meditate on the decline of Jesus. It is literally a step after step after step in, hum in humiliation. He didn't just take upon him the form of a man, but he became a servant. He became obedient unto death. And it wasn't just any death, it was the death of the cross. And it was just a constant humiliating in his life. And that was his mindset. It says that was his mind. That's the mind we're supposed to have. Galatians chapter 4, notice verse number 3. The Bible says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, uh, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. If, if, you were to if, you, if you were to ask me, Wes, what do you remember about your dad? Uh, my dad died when I was, I think I was 27. But um, if you were to ask me what I remembered about my dad, my dad always asked why. And it drove me nuts as a kid. I hated it. I hated that. If you wanted to do anything, it was always why. And uh, you remember, you guys, some of you will remember this. Do you remember like back in the 80s or whatever when it was cool to like cuff your pants? You know, and you'd fold them over and you'd roll them up uh, so they were nice and tight against your, you guys remember that? So I remember I was in elementary school and I remember one morning I got up, I rolled up my pants and I walk into the kitchen for breakfast, like, da-da-da, and my dad stops, and he kind of looks me up and down, and he's like, what are you doing? And you adults will know what I'm talking about here when I say this, and you teenagers know, you guys know, because I, gu I guarantee it, all of you have tried this, but you know how it goes. Me up now. He's like, what are you doing? I was kind of like, what do you mean? I mean, the second he asked me that, my brain goes, oh, man, I rolled my pants. I'm about to get in trouble. And I already knew. And my dad was like, why are you doing that? And my dad knew it was the cool thing to do. And he knew everybody else was doing it. And my dad told me, he said, you unroll those pants. You're not going to be just like everybody else. And I was afraid of my dad enough that I didn't even go back to school and roll my pants back up. I didn't do it on the bus. Because I was afraid I would see my dad somehow and I would get busted. And so I didn't even do it. But my dad used to ask why all the time. It was always why, why, why. Even through high school and once I got out of high school, it was always why. And so here in Galatians chapter 4, Paul tells us, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. And honestly, in my mind, I can't help but stop and say why. Why? 
And I, I know we have kind of a pad answer, and, and it's easy. Oh, he came to save us. He came to die for us. And, and I get that. But if you were to go home and do a Google search, what happens when I get saved? You will find lists. I found this afternoon, I Googled it real quick. I found a list of 50 things that happen when you get saved. I found a list, 38 things that happen when you get saved. And you will find all kinds of lists, things that happen the moment you get saved. You don't just get eternal life. You don't just get forgiven of your sins. There are a number of things that you and I are privileged to receive when we get saved. And God has provided those things. And here in Galatians chapter 4, in verse 3, it says we were in bondage to the elements of this world. The first one of the benefits we get is we're released. We're free. We're freed from those things. We're no longer in bondage. Um, in, uh, uh, in verse 5, it says to redeem. Jesus came to redeem us, to buy us back, to pay for our sins. But then he also says to receive the adoption of sons. We're a part of the family. God sent his son for you and for me. Take your Bibles, go over to Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, I want to look at five reasons why God sent his son. When the fullness of time was come. I don't know how patient you are. Pastor talked about patience this morning there in James chapter 1. And I'm not a huge fan of patience. And I'm not a huge fan of learning patience. Because patience is hard. Patience is not fun. Endurance. How many, how many of you love to run? And if it was just like, hey, let's work on our endurance and we're going to run three to five miles a day. Everybody meet at the church. How many of you are going to be here tomorrow? Well, tomorrow's really cold. Let's give it a couple months. But anyway, how many of you are going to show up? Yeah, Olivia. Olivia is crazy. That girl, run, she's been running cross country and stuff. And that, that I think she's kind of a little crazy up top. But I hate running. I hate it. Endurance is not an easy thing to build and to create in your life. And so when God sends trials to teach us patience, that's hard. That's hard. I don't, I don't enjoy that kind of thing. But here in Hebrews chapter 2, we see five things that God does for us or five reasons why God sent his son to die for us. Notice Verse number nine, Hebrews chapter two, verse nine says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Now that little lower than the angels is a reference to his humanity. He became a man. He became just a little bit lower than the angels. He took upon him the form of a man, just like we saw there in Galatians four and Philippians chapter two. It says, why? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. The first reason God sent his son was to die in our place, to die for you and to die for me. You see, um, Hebrews chapter 9, 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There has to be blood shed for sins to be forgiven. If you were to go back into the Old Testament, you will find that God had an entire system set up for the nation of Israel for them to offer sacrifice. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you will find that when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He sacrificed. There has always been the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And when God set up that system, it couldn't just be any lamb. 
It couldn't just be anything. God had requirements, and you had to meet those requirements. And if you didn't meet those requirements, it wasn't sufficient. It didn't work. You had to meet God's standard, and the reality is this, ladies and gentlemen, we don't meet God's standard. Why? Because the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I can't appease God's wrath in my sinfulness. So what do you have to do? He had to send Jesus. Why? Well, in um, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 20, in Revelation 13, verse 8, there it tells us that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That he was the perfect and clean lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. You could go to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, and there you'll see that he was the righteous. He died being righteous so that we could be the righteousness in him. The righteous for the unrighteous. 1 Peter 3.18 says it was the just for the unjust. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was God. He was man. And he was the only satisfactory substitute for you and for me nobody else could take that place nothing else could take that place he was the only one who could come and die for you and for me in first john chapter 2 verse 2 and in first john chapter 4 verse 10 we're not going to take the time to go there but there you have a big word it's called propitiation propitiation and in first john 4 10 you see that jesus is the propitiation for the entire world. What does that word mean? It means he was the satisfactory substitute to satisfy the wrath of God against your sin and mine. And he was the only one. I can't be the propitiation for your sin. I can't die for you and satisfy God's wrath. And you can't die for me. Only Jesus could do that. So when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. To die for you and to die for me. But not only to, di to die for us, but notice what it says in verse number 10. It says, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom all are all things and bring many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Now there's verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Notice the next phrase. He also himself likewise took part of the same. So just as you and I are flesh and blood. Jesus took on him flesh and blood. The book of John, I believe it is, tells us that God is a spirit spirit and many that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth god is a spirit so what did jesus do jesus stepped out of heaven and took upon him the form of a man he took on flesh and blood he came to earth for you and for me why notice what it says that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil not only did he come to die or to die in our place, but he also came to destroy our enemy. He came to destroy the devil. Ladies and gentlemen, the devil has no power. He has no more power. He has no more hold over us. He has no more say. His power has been stripped from him. Um, three thoughts real quick. 
you were to go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there in the very beginning, once the serpent deceived Eve and, and Adam and Eve sinned and all of that happened, God cursed the serpent and God made a promise in Genesis 3, 15. And there you see the sorrow of the serpent. The sorrow of the serpent, God said one day he will bruise your head. The devil would one day be destroyed. And ladies and gentlemen, Jesus came to destroy the devil. Not only do you see the sorrow of the serpent, but you see the triumph over the tempter. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says that Jesus made a show over them publicly. He triumphed over Satan. When he rose from the grave, I believe Satan thought he had him whipped. I think Satan thought he had won. Man, he's dead. But then what happened? On the third day, Jesus rose again. And when Jesus rose again, he triumphed over the tempter. And listen, we have the same triumph. Jesus Christ has destroyed the devil. Not only do you see the sorrow of the serpent and the triumph of the tempter, but last you see the destruction of the destroyer and the deceiver. If you went to Revelation 9, verse 11, you're going to have a name there for Satan, Apollyon, and it means destroyer. If you go to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, there you will see that the great deceiver is cast into the eternal lake of fire, the pit. He's destroyed. Jesus didn't just come to die for us, but he also came to conquer our enemy. He's no, he has no, he's never going to win. He does not win in the end. The Satan, Satan has deceived himself and he thinks he can win, but he will never win. And so Jesus came to suffer, to die in our place. He also came to destroy our enemy. When the fullness of time, Jesus came, thirdly, to rescue us from fear. Notice verse 15. And to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, death, death carries a fear. I remember as a little boy laying in my bed in the dark, being afraid to die. I remember those thoughts going through my mind as a little boy. I'll be real honest with you. Ever since my dad passed away, there are things that I worry about that I never thought about before. There are things with my kids and my family. It, sometimes it scares me. It scares me. But the reality is this, ladies and gentlemen, we don't have to be afraid of death. Death has no grip on us anymore. Why? Because Jesus conquered death. He destroyed death. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 15 through 55 through 57, there you'd see that uh, death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus conquered all that. You don't have to be afraid to die anymore. You don't have to be afraid of what lies beyond the grave. Why? Because Jesus has promised us eternal life. He came to this earth. He died in our place. And for whosoever shall call upon his name shall be saved. For God so loved the world uh, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's something to look forward to. We don't have to fear it anymore. We don't have to fear it anymore. Jesus came to conquer our fear of death. Fourth thing, notice verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Now notice this. But he took on him the seed of Abraham. Once again, he took on flesh. He became a man. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be, to be made like unto his brethren. Another reference to him taking on humanity. 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Notice this, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Not only did Jesus come to suffer or to die in our place, to destroy our enemies, to rescue us from our fear of death, but fourthly, he came to restore our relationships. Isn't restoration a sweet thing? Have you ever had an issue between you and somebody else? Maybe you were a little hesitant. Maybe there was a little bit of a fear that maybe, maybe you'd be too vulnerable and rejected. But you step out and you try to restore that relationship and they're receptive and you communicate and boom, and you, and you restore that relationship. Isn't that sweet? That is a sweet thing. Jesus came to restore our relationships with God. It's interesting to me in, um, in Luke 19.10, it says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, it says there's none that seeketh after God. Here's the amazing thing to me about reconciliation. We are the offending party. We're the sinner. We're the ones who've messed up. We're, we've made the mistake. We have offended God. Yet God is the one who sent his son, who stepped out of heaven, died on a cross, rose from the grave, and provides restoration when we're the ones who messed up. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that Jesus came to seek and to save and that we have no desire to restore that relationship. We don't seek God. God sought us. God isn't sitting back in heaven going, well, <laughs> well, when you come to me and ask me to, you know, and you say, well, I'm sorry, then yeah, we'll restore this relationship. God didn't do that. God took the initiative. You know what? Sometimes in your relationships, your human relationships, you might have to take the initiative. Really interesting thing, it's Matthew 8. Is it Matthew 8? Talks about going to the person who's offended you. Sometimes we get it backwards. We step back and we go, well, they, they offended me. They need to come find me and talk to me. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what God did. God sought restoration. God sought reconciliation. God wanted to fix the relationship with you and him. So God took that initiative. That is an amazing thing to me. Take your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. And notice, um, notice verse 18. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 says this, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God stepped, sent his son to reconcile us back to God, but guess what? God has given you and me the word of reconciliation. We can share that with the people around us. And we can reach out to the people we work with and the people we come into contact with. And we can inform them that God wants to restore that relationship. That they can have everlasting life. That they can have forgiveness. We've been entrusted 
with that same truth. And we can share that. We need to share that. But God sent his son when the fullness of time was come. God sent his son. Why? To reconcile us, to restore that relationship. And one last thing real quick. Back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. Notice this. He is able to succor them that are tempted. Not only did God send his son to die in our place, to destroy our enemies, to rescue us from fear, to restore our relationship, but also to give us aid, to help us. It's interesting, this word, sucker, I remember uh, Frank Maeda was just here last week, and I went to college with Frank, and we graduated together, and we took Greek together, and I remember, I remember Frank telling me that this word in Italian, this word in Italian is literally 911. Do you realize you can call on God any time of day, any time of night, at any moment, no matter where you are, and you're not going to get a busy signal, but God is going to be ready and willing and attentive. He's going to pay attention to you when you call on him. He is there to run to your aid, to help you, to help you. Turn over just a page, maybe, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and look at verse 15. The Bible says, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And what that means is he can be touched. He is touched by our infirmities. He is empathetic. He understands. He feels for you. God isn't up there. Jesus isn't up in heaven going, well, you know, that's kind of your fault. Well, you know, really, maybe you should just suck it up a little bit. Maybe you should get some thicker skin. God doesn't treat us that way. Just like pastor preached about wisdom this morning, God doesn't say, well, man, maybe you should be a little bit smarter. Maybe you should act. God doesn't berate us when we need wisdom. And God doesn't berate us when we go to him for aid. He says he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. When we hurt, God hurts. He's empathetic. He shows empathy. But was at all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Notice verse 16. Let us therefore, because of this reason, let us come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ladies and gentlemen, we can run boldly to Jesus and get help whenever we need it. And guess what? You can't abuse it. I think sometimes we think, well, God, I'm, I'm sorry, I just keep bothering you with this. And so we don't. And you're not going to bother God with it. God is never going to be bothered by you running to him for help. Never. Don't let yourself be deceived in thinking that you can bother God or that God isn't approachable or that God isn't going to listen or that God's unavailable because that's not true. Don't ever deceive yourself into thinking that God doesn't want to know about it or God doesn't want to help you or that God's sick and tired of hearing from you. I would say that's probably not true, that he probably doesn't hear from us enough. You will not wear God out. 
and you will not wear out your welcome with God. It says you can come boldly anytime. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Why? To die in our place, to destroy our enemies, to rescue us from fear, to restore our relationship, and to rescue or to aid us in our weakness. Run to him. Run to him and keep running to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.